0: Hello, and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, the podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law and policy. I'm Steve Murins. This week, Deano Kanachoff and I are joined by Raj Sharma, an immigration lawyer in Calgary at Stuart Sharma Harsanyi. Raj previously appeared on episode 48 of this podcast, where he discussed responding to procedural fairness letters, and also episode three, where he discussed marriage fraud. And today, Raj is on to discuss his case, Mohammed v. Canada, Citizenship and Immigration, which is the first federal court decision of 2022. There, the federal court ruled that the Immigration Appeal Division unreasonably minimized the extent to which working as a frontline healthcare worker during the COVID-19 pandemic should be a factor in the humanitarian and compassionate assessment. We also discuss processing times, mandamus applications, whether IRCC made a mistake in lumping federal skilled worker class and Canadian experience class applicants together in express entry, and more. Raj can be found on Twitter at imlawyercanada, I-M-M-Lawyer Canada, all one word. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I hope you enjoy. We're two years into two weeks to flatten the curve, two years to two weeks for IRCC to digitize applications and respond to COVID. Uh, Raj, you have The first federal court case of the year, Mohammed v. Canada, Citizenship and Immigration, 2022 FC1. Congratulations on the first reported decision of 2022. And I think it'd be a good um, guide or a good case to kind of summarize where we are two years into COVID. But actually, before we get to that, did you see that they finally replaced the blue horizontal bar with a green vertical bar as part of their digitization efforts to modernize client service?
1: What are you talking about? The,
0: the uh, did you see it, Raj, on Twitter? And uh, Sean Fraser and Twitter, they um, announced that for family class applications, you can now see the progress of your application. And Hello. it's a green vertical bar instead of the current blue horizontal bar.
2: The and more there's... things uh, change, the more <laughs> they stay the same. Uh, you, know, exactly. you know, call me as a skeptic or call me cynical, perhaps after 17, 18 years of practicing in this area, and, and trying to explain to my clients for the umpteenth time that processing times may not be actually indicative of reality. Um, but uh, let's, let's, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating of the pudding. Let's, yeah. Let's, uh, let's... There was uh, the someone who responded to their tweet
0: that said, but we never cared about the color of the bar. We just want our relatives
2: <laughs> to come to Canada. Most probably oh my God, the that's rare.
1: awesome. I don't oh, really part of the, part of the problem is the lack of me.
2: transparency. Oh, sorry. Oh. Go ahead, Diana.
1: No, I just, I had a client who wrote to me and was like, oh, good news, they're going to get on processing times. And I was like, okay, you know, just wait, just don't don't send your invites out for the party just yet.
2: Don't sell the farm yet. But uh, why don't we talk
0: about your case? Because I thought it does tie into an aspect of COVID. You know, we hear a lot about processing times, the border issues, uh, but your case dealt with kind of how frontline COVID workers are treated in the humanitarian and compassionate context. So do you maybe want to like, summarize Bhafna um, sure. Mohammed's uh, background and
2: how sure. she Bav- found herself needing a lawyer? Yeah, Bhavna Mohammed, uh, you know, and in, in this, to some degree, I'm going to put this down as um, some degree of overconfidence on my part. And, and perhaps that sneaks in once you do a certain number of, uh, Cases or litigation and and every now and then you 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 encounter that sort of reality which is the assessment is was incorrect I mean ultimately proven correct at the federal court so Bhavna mohammed was a permanent resident of Canada she had come here many years ago as an international student she graduated she worked in Canada in, in as a health aid. Um, Things didn't work out. It was a little bit harder to navigate from uh, temporary residence to permanent residence back when she did it around 2010, 2011. Ended up going back to Fiji, reconnected with, um, and, and, and got sponsored to Canada by her first husband. And so she became a permanent resident. She accumulated quite enough number of days in Canada and working in Canada, and then marriage breaks down, Reconnects with the old boyfriend, ends up making this sort of significant decision of going to the U.S. and ends up getting married. So her you know, boyfriend, husband is Muslim. Her, his parents are like, no, no, we're not going to do this dating thing. Uh, you're going to get married. So ends up getting married, ends up getting married, Gets some sort of shoddy advice, which is you can regularize her status from within the U.S. Husband's a green card holder. Um, I had to ask my own brother about this. My brother's a US immigration lawyer, but in essence, he, she should have done something called consular processing, instead of trying to navigate the system from within the US. Um, she ultimately gets refused and comes back to Canada at the port of entry uh, with her expired PR card. And she's written up for non-compliance of the residency obligation. Everyone uh, is probably familiar that you need to have two years it's this use it or lose it type of provi- uh, provision. You got to be in Canada two years out of a five-year period. She's way short. We run the appeal. In the meantime, she's healthcare aide. She starts working at Bethany Care in Airdrie. There's been a massive outbreak. COVID happens. We run the appeal. So I look at this appeal on to go to the IED. She's got lots of family in Canada. She's studied in Canada. She's, you know, but for this mistake or this shoddy advice, she wouldn't be in the situation that she is right now. So all of the classic rubicon and shoe factors were there other than really best interests of a child. I looked at her service in the time of a pandemic where we're, you know, beating pots and pans in on balconies in support of frontline healthcare workers. And so I made that the centerpiece of my appeal. And so I had letters from Bethany, I put in information about the outbreak there the, the deaths of residents there like really she's there at, at, for the most vulnerable at the most vulnerable time uh, when their own family members couldn't be there for while they were dying for example she's dealing with dead bodies she's dealing with feeding people she's dealing with you name it she's dealing with it with people that have dementia again um, and so I made that the centerpiece of the appeal and, and I really thought okay well you know we've all done residency appeals and a lot of them are this sort of like uh these western songs like my dog died my wife left me and and whatever right and so they're not that compelling sometimes because most ultimately most times when you lose your status and you lose at the ID, it's because of choices outside that you've made not because of extenuating circumstances that you chose Uh, and so you know you you know you you've picked you know, now you got to lie, in it. you picked your bed, now lie in it. And so this was truly compelling. And again, most residency appeals are fail at the IED. I made it the centerpiece and we got this strange decision from the board member, which was that, yeah, I, I give it, you know, I give this moderate weight, I give this some weight, I give this some moderate positive weight. And we took it to federal court, um, had Justice Smith, remember, Raj, sorry. It was yeah. it was member Stephanie Pinto and and you know uh-huh. Stephanie, okay Stephanie and I uh, we worked together at the IRB 20 years ago she was a case officer at that time she then became a hearings officer so even seeing Stephanie I felt confident um, I had the CBSA officer who's again just has never seen any appeal that she's liked uh, you know an, an officer that I've done a complaint against in the past and and so you know again I was like okay she's gonna be over the top and you know, my client is very compelling and very credible and I've got all of the evidence and I've got a good draw. Lo and behold, I get this refusal, um, went to the federal court. We got a very good decision. And I remember telling the federal court justice that, and, and again, I've got this DOJ lawyer uh, on the other side. Uh, I quoted Justice Harrington who quoted from Shakespeare, Titus Andronicus, the case and the DOJ lawyer interrupts and she's like you know uh excuse me you know um i've never heard counsel quote from shakespeare before and it's just as em it just as like well there's a first time for everything
1: <laughs> that's amazing
2: i then start talking about what she has to do as a healthcare aide aid in bethany care and and i'm like this is very difficult work this i'm like this moral debt that we owe these individuals is not easily Uh, you know, quantifiable, this is not something that we can put into words exactly. And and how does that board member deal with it? I'm like, this work is so difficult. I'm like, there's, you know, I could not do this work. I said that again, she interrupts. She's like, I object. Counsel should not be expressing their personal opinions. At this point, and I just, I'm just quiet. And I just waiting to see Justice Emmett's response. And Justice Emmett's like, Mr. Sharma, I want to hear more of your opinion on this matter. Oh
1: my goodness, Raj, this is amazing.
2: So, yeah, and I'm just like, and the only thing is, like, you know, don't gild the lily, Raj, right? And I'm just like, okay, just mm-hmm. bring this home now. Just bring this home. Everything's done. And then the decision was as good or perhaps better as what I expected. That moral debt was there. So, finally, like, you know, again, let's not just pay lip service to these, the frontline, the essential care workers, you know, there's evidence before Justice Ahmed in terms of the impact on racialized immigrant women that took the brunt of it. So in Toronto, for example, they were disproportionately affected by COVID and infected by COVID during the worst outbreaks. So he, we had that evidence before the IED itself. So we had this disproportionate impact on racialized immigrant women, which is Bhavna Muhammad. So we had everything there, and so here I, I will uh, castigate myself a little bit on the IED that perhaps I uh, was overconfident on this one exceptional factor. Ultimately, I was proven correct uh, this time around. It's obviously going back to the IAD, so we will um, address more of the typical ribic and chew factors, which never really work in residency appeals, but we will now cross the T's and, and dot the I's. Always unpredictable.
0: That was the uh, the paragraph that leapt out at me when I read the case. And you just you yeah. alluded to it, which is paragraph 43 that, quote, the moral debt owed to immigrants who worked on the front lines to help protect vulnerable people in Canada during the first waves of the COVID-19 pandemic cannot be understated. I do not find that the IAD gave this contribution the way it deserved,
2: end quote. You so, should have seen, you should have seen, Justice Smiths. Uh, when I quoted, like, I went through the transcript. CBSA Hearings Council said that my client essentially is working in this, as a frontline healthcare worker to buttress her appeal. And I'm like, let me get, this is in the transcript. I'm like, let me get this straight. My client dealing with an unknown pathogen is going to put herself in harm's way, potentially risk her life, just so she could potentially win an appeal. That's a year or so in the future. So, mind-boggling stuff. So again, I thought that I had it at the ID. Uh, got a strange decision. You know, we had the federal court. Um, so very, very, you know, very grateful for that decision. And I think, and the the beauty of that decision is that, one month after the, uh, you know. In December, after I ran that argument in front of the federal court, I was in front of Stephanie Pinto again on an ID from MISRA, for a non-disclosed family member, for a young girl from Nepal who was working as a healthcare provider in a COVID facility who graduated from, who studied in Canada. And I said to Stephanie Pinto, I said, you know, that last case we had, I have leave. And I just argued that in front of Justice Ahmed. And I'm going to tell you that her contributions on the front lines is a significant factor and you cannot underplay it. Fast forward, get the decision, sent it into the IAD uh, post hearing. It was accepted as obviously was referenced in submission. So I believe Bobna Muhammad is going to assist other cases. It's not gonna be a lot, but it will come in handy. I,
1: I I wouldn't underestimate it, Raj. I think that this is a really epic decision in so many ways. And first of all, just the way that you just articulated what you did in that was so brilliant that it really, um, I think, it even elevated the uh, the decision itself, which was pretty spectacular. But um, for me, um, and you know, you're gonna to need to cut me off after a few minutes. But like, um, I just wanted to say that kind of my takeaways from from both the decision and from also what you've said right now. Is that like we are working in truly Shakespearean times. And if you're not prepared to bring that level of um, of, I don't even know what you call it, but to your litigation, then you shouldn't be in front of a decision maker right now. Because um, you know, you sort of you said at one point that you, you've been castigating yourself because oh, I didn't do this quite as well and da-da-da. But at the same time, um, it's just the, like I know what you're saying when you talk about like when I read it, you know, when I get the facts from my client and I sort of do a bunch of time just making sure I've got the whole insides and outs of the case, I have a gut instinct as to how this is going to do. Um, and usually my gut instinct is pretty spot on and I'm not trying to like, you know, no. um, beat my own drum, but I just kind of mean like when you've been doing it for long enough and with enough cases, you're like, okay, this is a winner. But some of those winners are tanking and you have to anticipate even in what you, like I, I got in trouble with a client the other day because I was like, no, 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 we're going to settle this case. Not only do we not settle it, we didn't get leave. I don't think I've been denied leave since I was an article student, you know? <laughs> like yeah. I just was like, what's happening to me right now, you know? And so so you can take well, nothing for granted.
2: Well, I think, you know, it again, it uh, was that you see where, Doing the advocacy course, I think that in fact uh, a lawyer and advocate should appropriately, on, in the appropriate case, should demonstrate passion and and should be able to be uh, eloquent. I, yeah, that's true. A lot of lawyers won't quote uh, Shakespeare, but I was actually I was actually referencing Sean Harrington, who quoted from Titus andronicus. Can you hear a good man groan and not relent and not compassion him? It, it's it's that's it that's you know and you're trying to explain the churwa you're trying to explain that you know the the churwa concept of agency relief and then you know the the sort of convergence between section 25 sub 1 and section 671 c of the iad and where they came from and and how do we apply that and what is the jurisdiction of the iad and there's other cases which is that the iad agency is not a a uh, quantifiable processes qualificative, qualificative, I believe that's just a sure or, or just a zin. Um, and so one factor could be an overriding factor. Um, so I, I agree, I mean, you know, we do have a good sense of it and uh, I'm glad that I was sort of vindicated uh, and the client is uh, obviously, client, uh, you know, client was watching uh, during this Zoom thing. So that was uh-huh. also, Uh, And, you know, just a note to other counsel, DOJ counsel, A, interrupted me a couple of times uh, and then uh, couldn't find something in her materials and and then said, uh, uh, Raj, uh, where's that document, Raj? What page is that document at? And again, Justice Ahmed, any any justice would be like, firstly, it's not Raj, it's Mr. Sharma or my friend. Um, And number two, he's like, you better find this on your own. And so maintain some degree of decorum it's still it's the federal court I know we're doing everything on zoom these days but you know
1: without a gown and all this kind of stuff but it's still it's still uh, uh, representations in front of yeah. the federal so that, that,
2: that's where the sort of experience I think probably comes in handy know who you're in front of uh, but I think you know know well, who know, you're across know, from yeah Perhaps. I think so too. But, yeah. Honestly, I do think so
1: because, like, I do think so. Yeah. I think that there's you can leave no stone unturned
2: right I now. I think I think more senior DOJ would not have done what uh, that counsel did. That That's uh, my that, point. that that much I can say. In terms but of I think uh, also
1: like you, you do need to bring every tool, so whether or not that means you're going to be literary, whether that means you need to be a bit theatrical, whether or not that means you need to be extremely political, I think you have to be prepared with all of that material, right down to the point of like, do not gloss over the affidavit is no longer just about showing the materials that were before the officer, I think you really need to up your game and be like, Yes, but also consider this material that's like, you know, I think that, um, I I, you know, when I am approaching litigation right now, I'm pretty confident in my own skills, but that doesn't mean I'm not speaking to my, you know, the three litigators or maybe the two litigators I have on speed dial to be like, would you do this differently? Am I missing something? Like we need, this is part of what's so challenging right now is we really need to collaborate and be like, oh, how did this work? Why did this work? You know, talking I think, through, I took Gordon Maynard for lunch the other day to be like, you need to set me straight. Cause this is a hard case. And he was like, whoa, Martin, Gordon said, I don't get surprised much, but this one surprises me. And so well, we sat over lunch and all, just tore it
2: apart. All of those points are good. And, and I would say that also you should pick your battles. Yeah. Um, would, and that, that may be more true for DOJ than us. I'm going to come back to the case and some of the
0: possible, you know, implications where it may also apply. Cause I agree with Deanna. I could see uh, this possibly having wide ranging implications, but coming back to something Deanna just said um, about, you know, the affidavit, not just being something where you strict to what was purely before the visa officer, something that I've kind of learned over the years is, To take, you know, the federal court judges when they present at CBA conferences will often say almost, you know, try to keep your applicant record as small as possible. Try to keep your memorandum of argument as small as possible. And I have found over the years that I will regret what I didn't say much more than possibly putting too much into an applicant's record. And that was really driven home early at the uh, IAD for me by the um, hearings counsel, who I won't name, but who is actually really good. And I would say made me a much better litigator there because he would just focus in all the time on what was missing from an applicant's record. And if the applicant, uh, the appeal, like uh, I can't remember what it's called at the ID, but like the material the uh, applicant puts forward, the disclosure, and it was always, well, if the applicant cared more about their case, they would have made this more comprehensive. So I don't know Kind of what I've seen a uh, lot
1: of that too and at the board and at the federal court yeah like, so I don't know why't you, why shared, didn't you like, explain better why you're not sharing this information with your children like really getting into people's uh, personal decisions and personal life and you know just uh feeding off of what you're saying Steve is that like um the um sorry like I think that when you deal with the deference given to decision makers they're allowed to take into consideration general country conditions, you know, like, and so, you know, that's not something that's on the record, but that will be part of the, I don't know if I'm making sense here, but that will be part of the reasonableness assessment. Like, was it unreasonable, given what their deference is owed, given like they know country conditions? It seems to me that if there are assumptions being made about country conditions, you need to provide counter evidence to that. It's not something that like, I don't know, I just I feel like um, this needs to kind of be thought through more, uh, more specifically, more meaningfully, because like, don't just take for granted that because that evidence wasn't there, that You know, talking about the risks that somebody would take working in the healthcare sector can't be something that you still argue. Um, So I just think that, like, really, you need to take the blinders off and take the most broad spectrum approach to how you strategize around the case. And then to go off of something that Raj said too, like, um, you know, he was saying, you were saying, Raj, about choose your battles. But I think the other kind of practice advice right now is that you need to be very different about managing your client expectations. Um, And so like what the cost might be, like you can quote your fees for an IAD, but if you're likely, if there's a real good chance you're going to lose at the IAD and then you're going to have to start quoting fees for federal court application, like you need to foreshadow this in your conversations with your client and repeatedly bring it up and just be like, we might not win here. And even though I think we've got a winning case, you might need to budget for both an IAD appeal and a federal court and then going back to the visa office And then being refused again, and then having, you know, like, it's just like, it's just really hard to kind of think of all the things you need to at least open as a conversation with your client from the very beginning and just keep bringing back all the way through. The professional responsibility here is just like, uh, it's real, real high.
0: So on the case, just uh, swinging back then, as far as where it could apply, like her knock is, um, as a healthcare aide, is what the government would consider an unskilled knock with no immediate pathway to permanent residence. So I guess, Raj, my question would be, do you see this decision as possibly forming a basis uh, for, well, healthcare knocks to claim HNC? You could expand it to the whole, like all of the TRPR, Occupations is what the government considered essential to COVID 19. Um, and do you think that this creates, I guess my question is almost its own factor uh, in an HNC assessment? Uh,
2: I think so. I, I think, you know, remember when we say, and I, I hate the word unskilled, I, I hate the word unskilled to describe uh, NOxia D occupations because, um, you know, when you, uh, when you need them, they're essential workers. And when you uh, sort of don't need them, then they're unskilled workers. I I prefer the term low-wage workers rather than unskilled workers. Um, I had a discussion with uh, Doug Saunders of the Global Mail about this. We have a Byzantine immigration system. COVID threw a wrench into an already cumbersome and inefficient um, uh, machinery. And so you could have, for example, in Alberta, the ANP, you could have um, someone that provides for my 93-year-old mother, someone that goes to her residence um, and assists her, Uh, she lives with my uncle in Edmonton, someone that goes there and provides her assistance, same graduation from Alberta grad, that person is ineligible under the AOS, the Alberta Opportunity Stream. If that person is working in a residence care facility, on the other hand, as a home support worker, that person is. Um, So again, this Byzantine rules that you have the same duties, but you do it in this location versus this location. This one's in, this one's out. Um, you have accounts payable clerk, who's a 1-4, that's not c So one year working as accounts receivable or payable clerk at Sheraton Hotel, you're not in, you're not c for Canadian experience class. Now a bookkeeper at a 1-2, that person's in. So we have to get rid of this Byzantine um, system. I. I you know, that's the, that's the, that's the future. Now, can change happen? Obviously, sclerotic organizations like government departments don't like change, but COVID has forced change. And so we saw, for example, the TR to PR pathways, which was uh, one of the silver linings of COVID. Um, But COVID continues and and our processing continues to have significant human cost. I agree with you. They've moved it from a blue bar to a green bar, but people's lives are still uh, hanging in the, in the balance of that, uh, whatever status bar, whatever color that status bar is.
1: Uh, You've got, there's so much packed into that Raj, and it's really brilliant. Um, I think that this thing, like I've basically been, I've made a career out of making these arguments about the healthcare sector, like my whole obsession with the caregiver um, stuff and all the jurisprudence around that. So I feel like it's studying, starting because of the um, well, what you said, that when we need them, they're essential. When you don't, they're low skilled. Um, right now, anybody who's going to care for anybody under any circumstances is just essential. So to call them low skilled and C and D and fewer opportunities is kind of um, uh, it's primitive and archaic. Nick, Nick Keung, by the way, from the Toronto Star has done some really, really good writing on this subject as well. Um, and so, you know, in terms of the 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 part that complicates it for me is this TR to PR pathway being one of the bright lines. Like part of what we've been talking about in other episodes, and Steve and I have done this a whole bunch, is that like, yes, it's a bright line, but, you know, the numbers for that program carved out of the express entry. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it just has created this situation we're in right now which is that there are enough people in the backlog to fill the entire quota for next year. And are they the right people even? You know, like we don't even know. So like we're kind of hamstrung on this thing. And also people are like, you know, coming to Canada and paying hundreds of thousands of dollars on Canadian education with the expectation of a CEC pathway that may not exist when they get there, you know? So like, I think that the idea of like the total absence or at least the appearance of the total absence of strategic planning from the department's perspective. Like who are you going to bring in? Like, and the total lack of transparency. So people don't have any way of planning around this is just like, it's like, it's epic.
0: Well, and it's like the lack of transparency is part of what's really giving rise to the sense that there is no plan, like coming back or where like the plan is just based on what can we do to hit a numbers target? Sure. Uh, plan, maybe if you have plan, a
1: plan, maybe there the, is a plan. The plan is if you're not telling that, uh, anybody, it's like, it's not of any value to, to the public.
2: The plan is that we're going to build a plane while we fly it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the plan. And I yeah, agree in terms of tra- transparency, almost a fifth of Canadians are immigrants. Um, you will have to, immigration will have to do better. We, you, they got a pass, uh, you know, we very, you know, a lot of ink and tears have been spilled over the impact of the pandemic on immigration processing. Um, But, you know, the pandemic, you you can't keep beating this dead horse of the pandemic. Uh We've had enough time to adjust. We've had, we have enough technology. We've all had to pivot.
1: So how come you can't, like, and we've had to pivot, like, like, right around a sharp corner, like, a total U-turn kind of a pivot. We've all had to do that, not just the lawyers, but the people have had to pivot around like the life planning and all this kind of stuff. So the department has to be better as you say Raj, like that's totally it. And this email about like, I'm sorry, we can't answer your question because we're dealing with people from Afghanistan. like bullshit. I'm sorry, but bullshit. And I just want to be yeah, like, please, that let's is not, not okay. Let's,
2: yeah. Let's not put this on the people of Afghanistan. They've suffered <laughs> enough, right? Like. I mean, and also you're let, not actually helping them, them yeah,
1: you're not yeah, helping them either. Yeah, you're not helping them either. So like, yeah, don't tell, I have a bunch of those yeah. cases and they won't answer my emails either. So don't tell me that's who you're paying attention to. Cause I know what, you're not.
2: What I love is the email where it says like, our officers don't have any more information than you do regarding processing. I'm like, wow. That's problem.
1: <laughs>
0: That is the problem. It's also not true because they have access to GCMS. I've never understood <laughs> that. Like They totally idea. do. They just won't share it. <laughs> Which, again, goes like to the whole, you know, people never cared about the color of the bar. They want to be able to see basically what's in GCMS. Um, and I don't know why the department doesn't. I have more sympathy on the... Uh... Well, but the thing is, like, we think that...
2: My sympathy they... dried up about... Uh... <laughs> I think maybe six months ago. I I did have some sympathy too.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that the the big thing for the department is, uh, you know, in our own ability to adjust to COVID, we could, and the government did this a bit, slow down intake, whereas the number of new applications that they kept receiving, um, and I actually think like, you know, we say that the department hasn't been able to adjust to processing. They, I think, achieved what they wanted, which was their target. Like that was their starting point. And that's what they planned around. It may look like they're, you know, being impacted by the pandemic or that this is chaotic, but really, like, they achieved their objective. They launched a new program. They hit their targets. If you start yeah, from this okay, is what hold we on. want. Yeah.
2: All right. Yeah. That's it. fine. If if the if the if if the measurement of success is immigration intake, that's fine. You're right. They did hit their target of 400,000. It, but it yeah, all depends so on, on a, you know, if you hold on, if you measure, uh, you know, the ability of a fish to climb a tree, it, it'll, it'll, it'll think it's a failure for the rest of its life. It, it all depends on what your measurement is. Now we take, uh, we took in 400,000 at a cost. There was a cost to many other applicants as well. You did well, hit your 400,000. was a 400, cost, 000. but
0: I think it yeah. was deliberate. I don't think it, I sure. think the government could Absolutely. Have completely process those skilled workers
2: in 2021. No, no. no that uh, wasn't their goal. No, no, I, and you know what, I've, I would prioritize always applicants that are living, working, studying in Canada over anyone overseas, on, on, under the economic class, to be clear. That, that's, that, that should have been shifted. CEC should never have been competing with FSW anyway. We should never have uh, deleted the t- pre-2012 CEC pass-fail and put them in the general pool with FSW. That should never have happened. I give another
1: example of that is the the caregiver categories, the HCCP and the HSWP, those like two pilots, they also have overseas competing with people who are here and have already done their two years of work. And if they give those spots away to the people overseas, those people in Canada cannot get landed and continued in that have to continue in that indentured, indentured servitude of LMIA-based employment on a fixed employment contract. With like, yeah. you know, yeah. does the employer want to spend the thousand dollars on an LMIA
2: application? It's another I, one. I don't have sympathy for um, IRCC at this point. I have a modicum of sympathy of FSWs that have been selected and they're waiting in limbo, and there's just not enough transparency, as Stephen puts it. And thank God for his A tip efforts that they now know that it could be a very long uh, wait indeed. I have a great deal of sympathy for family class um, yeah. that are in limbo, that are stuck, families are being affected, families are being torn apart, marriages are failing, relationships are failing. Um, that, is a, are that is a fail, that is a fail by IRCC. Yeah, I, I have a question for you
1: both though about the quota thing. Like is the 400,000 or whatever it is, is that decisions or is that actual humans? Humans. It's humans because I mean, the thing to me, like I wanna take you back to the HCCP HSWP thing, which is that they say 2750 per year on each of those programs, but I'm getting the most insane refusals. And I think those people took up their spot in the 2750. Like they hit the target let's say in March, then they stop accepting applications and then the refusals come out almost a year later. So like the spot is burned for both the overseas person and for the one just trying to regularize her status and bring her family over. They burn that spot and then they refuse because like literally um, for a three month period They called themselves self-employed and the department says self-employed is not a job description. So they will refuse the application on that basis a year later. And then I have to get this caregiver to finance a federal court judicial review application on her $14 an hour wage where she's raising the kids and taking care of the elderly person who's like in this COVID environment. Like it's just mental.
0: So yeah. And to go to your question of that, like, so their target for people under the Caregiver, uh, w- caregiver programs, agri-food pilot, and rural and northern immigration pilot was 8,500 people. So how that 2,500 applications plays into that and you know how many dependents there are, I'm not sure. But yeah, that's a measurement of people.
1: Um, it's It can't be about people, though, because, I mean, it definitely doesn't include their dependents. It's applications they will accept in the door. Yeah. But then if 50% of those, and I haven't got the... Uh, the skill that you do, Steve, to be able to do the appropriate A tips to figure out, like, let's get at the quality of the decisions that happened on those 2750 applications brought in. I'm sure there's only maybe of the number that I speak to a super small margin who can actually have an employer who will pay me to run the judicial review. Um, I don't have the funding to do them all for free, and I have to pay staff. Like, it, just like it's a problem that is so broken that I think getting beyond that how many in the door and how many actual decisions that actually brought humans in those programs needs to be broken down better.
0: Yeah, no, my my point is they're clearly planning on a number of refusals, because if you have 2750 plus dependents, plus the agri-food pilot, rural and northern immigration pilot, and you're only planning on approving 8,500 people, there's definitely a plan for a certain amount.
1: Exactly. like they
0: plan on that. Going to the processing times, Raj, another thing you've been uh, tweeting about recently is Mandamus, which we did a episode
2: on sometime last year. Um, our, our first Mandamus was uh, the Tarak Zagbib, where I took a Mandamus issue to the Federal Court of Appeal. Yeah, we on, did an episode was there, for, I that I was like years a ago. That yeah. was
0: third episode, yeah. uh, but I think you've been filing them more now.
2: Yeah, or and, and, threatening and, at
0: least sending the demand
2: letters. Yeah, and, and so bear in mind again, you pick your battles. So yeah, I did sure. not, I did not send a demand, and, and look, mandamus I've been doing for ten years plus, and I've used mandamus in a variety of circumstances, including compelling CBSA to investigate marriage fraud. Uh, mandamus is a is not a great remedy. Okay, it's a very very uh, stratified. Actually... It's uh, very sclerotic. It's 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 backed back, you go back, I, you know, I, at the Federal Court of Appeal for Tharik Zabib, I was like, this is not a great remedy. It's not like certiorari. It's not like these other things. So mandamus is you got to fit this sort of square peg, square hole. So I avoided mandamus for more than a year, a year and a half. People were asking me for mandamus demand. We've heard you can do this. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And then all of a sudden the dam burst. And if, in fact, I think my Twitter uh, followers have leaped. Uh, it, it, since I've been posting, you know, demand, no response, we file, uh, we get a consent or uh, we get leave. And, uh, you know, so 17 days, the last one was, we made a, uh, filed our record on January 24th or so, we got the landing instructions for a nurse, a US nurse who is ready, willing, and able to serve on the front lines of this pandemic, graduated from the U.S., everything set, right to go, came up here, is actually studying in her field as well, paying international fees. So we can't land her? Well, we now That's did. Same. We, we, yeah, we now, did, did on you sa- We did on mute your Saturday. mic and scream? <laughs> when?
0: Did you just mute your mic and scream?
2: Yeah, oh, I have been. Yeah, so, <laughs> that, so that was the most recent case. So yes, I am now. Now the floodgates are open. Now I don't care. I, I was very uh, diligent. I was like, I don't think we've got a mandamus. My personal opinion is no mandamus. I don't want to take your money if I don't think I can meet the test. But now we are meeting the test. We now have delays of landing prior to the pandemic. Prior to, like this person should have been landed before March 2020, for example. Uh, but now, um, and and you know, we're getting leave. We now have we're getting leave from the court. the The court is not, uh, you know, responding. The respondents' argument is it's a it's a it's a COVID. It's impacted processing. I we just got leave. I have a matter on this. I have to discontinue it because my fifty eight year old uh, just got landed under the CEC. So we're discontinuing that as well. Yeah, I've noticed Mandamus
0: has been productive as well. I held off the same way you have, yeah. and I'm finding uh it to be very productive and also apparently they're now getting so many of them that like doj across the country appear to be working on it and pulling in i had a chat with the department of justice lawyer like they're pulling in lawyers who don't normally do immigration because um of the volume that they're getting
2: which i don't know how big a wrench
0: this actually throws like when you have a certain number of people that are filing mandamus how much does this actually impact normal it's, process it, times?
2: It, it, It's huge. It, uh, just on the DOJ side, my last one where I got leave, they had to get an affidavit from some officer saying, look, I'm reviewing this under, it was an Indian army guy from 30 years ago. And so they had to review like security for Indian army. I, I thought this matter was settled 10 plus years ago, but in any event, you know, you're getting affidavits, they're fighting us on some. Um, But mandamus continues to be, will be very, very relevant. The story of 2022, if we're talking about judicial review, the story of 2022 will be mandamus. Yeah, I think so as well.
1: A few points here on the mandamus thing, which is that Um, First of all is about the delay, and I think that what I'm really kind of grappling with, because I mean to me it is a bit of an ethical quandary like I don't want to bring vexatious litigation I don't want to bog down the process and all this I don't want to add to the the DOJ problem which I'll get to in a second, Um, but at the same time it's not just about the number of months, it's about the impact on that human given the specific circumstances of that human's life. Like where two years might be a kind of no biggie for somebody who just wants to be able to leisure travel, on somebody who like can't visit family members because of this or can't be with a kid, it's a shorter timeline. And I just don't know if that kind of um, tethering of the time and the consequences is really there in the way that it needs to be. Raj is looking at me like he doesn't know what I'm talking about. But I just feel like, you know, no, it's sort of been more crude months in the past. I feel.
2: Mandamus is like using a hammer to kill a mosquito. Mm-hmm. In many times. But a, an, to... an
1: ineffective hammer. Like this goes also to the point about the inefficacy of the of the you, you remedy. Prob-
2: you probably would not use a mandamus for an outstanding TRV, for example, because you're just you're asking for refusal. You'd right, use exactly. that, you do, because that's the easiest way to exercise discussion. Okay, no, I'm not satisfied. Done. Now what now what are you gonna do? Yeah, exactly. So mandamus again, you pick and choose. It'll probably be a PR, it'll probably be citizenship. citizenship? It, is, yeah. it is probably gonna be tied to some objective sort of criteria which is some kind of posted processing times some kind of, of you know some kind of determination pre-pandemic perhaps right you know i would probably say i would probably say mandamus for pr somewhere over 18 months or so. So that's just somewhere over 18 months or so. But let's I put it this way. Three there, times the stated processing is usually the I wouldn't part. go that and, far anymore. And, and there's no such thing, I believe. Now the bar is, I, I think that vexatious mandamus are, are few and far between. Who are, who's going to pay you for mandamus, uh, demand, whatever? Uh, they self-select. You are going to get, most applicants are going to be waiting around. They're going to give them the year. Um, you know, a couple of expired medicals. Okay, you know, around 18, 18 months or so is when you start thinking about mandamus seriously.
0: Well, and so with the other thing with the skilled worker applications is a lot of times it seems like they've all been processed. They're just not being finalized. So you mentioned with the TRV, they could just refuse it. With these skilled workers, it seems to literally be just a question of pushing a button. And I think that button wasn't pushed before because they were prioritizing CEC to hit their numbers. But like, as far as, you know, going before the federal, like in terms of DOJ, whether you settle and just tell IRCC to approve the thing or go before a judge, do you really want to go before a judge with an application where the GCMS notes all say it's been yeah, approved and go. it's just been sent waiting to be landed? I had that tweet. I
2: can't remember. Remember, I, remember one thing. They used ministerial instructions when they trashed the pre 2008 FSW applications. Yeah. Okay. So they used it, ministerial instructions trash this. Okay, done. They brought in Express Entry, thinking that 80 percent we're going to finalize in six months. So Mandamus is is very suited for Express Entry work because that, because yeah. they trashed they, we couldn't use this on the ministerial instructions we couldn't jr this stuff on the ministerial instructions and you trashed. 800,000 applicants or 600,000 applications, but you don't, you can't use those ministerials. You might be able to use ministerial instructions right now. And that might happen. You might say, you know what, we're going to restrict FSWs to 10,000 per per year, or we're not going to take any more FSW under express entry.
0: Yeah. The department isn't making it easy on themselves. Like I just went to the IRCC check processing times website, select an application type, economic immigration, which type federal skilled worker have you already applied? I already applied six months. And like there's, I mean, Mandamus is in part based on what are their normal processing times. And if the IRCC website, and they continue to say it should be six months, uh, and it's actually, you know, as per that memo that-
2: And you should be able to rely the two website. Two years yeah. to
0: three years, yeah. yeah.
1: I think, though, so. I mean, when we were talking about where do I still have sympathy or empathy, whatever we're going to call it, I still have empathy for the DOJ. Um, and I actually have growing empathy for the DOJ. I would love to be on a, a fly on the wall in some of those conversations between the DOJ lawyers and their client trying to get instructions about these mandamus applications. Because, like, imagine if you're the lawyer and your client has this, decision on the books in gcms saying we're approved but now you're still waiting for a year and doj is like why are you wasting my time yeah. just paper that decision so that i can move on to real litigation
2: we have uh, we have a fair group out in alberta so a lot of counseling you know like so obviously whoever i encountered at my uh, at that last uh, the litigation we talked about wasn't uh, in alberta <laughs> right I <see>. so <clears throat> But yeah, it, my, you know what, uh, it my
0: understanding to... also though that DOJ is dealing with uh, certain individuals in private practice who have commoditized JRs and mandamus and are oh. filing applications that have nothing personalized, just totally like a chatbot. Yeah, like uh, they just file the initial application and don't do anything with it in the hopes that
1: that... I say to those people, please stop. You're breaking yeah. the... But building. they're, so they're
0: like, they're like, well, and so I've heard that a couple of DOJ lawyers say this, is that I, it's being just sold as something like, oh, we can file an native, we can file a JR and see what happens with no intention of applicants' records, no intention. Well, that's the big one of applicants' records and it's just clogging the system. I don't... No one and I mean there is the supposed to be a
1: statutory but. limit on replying to an tip, and if they were meeting that rather than requesting extensions every single time then those would not turn into JR. So again I understand that some um, advocates have this attitude that or this approach to lawyering that you just you keep knocking on the door every time until they answer it, but at the same time it's causing so much um, push along effects because Let's say you have a really legitimate JR that's maybe not even a mandamus, but the Department of Justice in Vancouver, at least in my experience, they can't read the file until like maybe a day or two days before their reply deadline, which means that they can't settle, even though if they had had two weeks to get instructions from their client, they would have been able to. But their own personal inventory is so high right now because of this, like, you know, this new um manifestation of what is really an ATIP request now being processed by the Department of Justice. It means that by the time they get to your file, it's too late for them to have a meaningful conversation with their client, especially when they're in a different time zone.
2: I believe so, the court is we've got some instructions. i have got like eight JRs in the next one, two months. And so like I believe there's they're trying to force the parties to to kind of come to a decision on consent prior to the hearing
1: there's uh, a new practice direction i think yeah, where the so doj actually has to paper like uh, yeah. i have looked at this i am not going to settle with you because and, you know say, sometimes
2: they're settling with us like two days prior to the hearing well that's not very fair we're, we're ready no, to it's go it's
1: not I, they've already spent all their money by then yeah. or not all of it but a whole lot of money
2: no no but we're ready to go i'd rather get a decision and you know i've resisted consents from doj before a risky strategy uh but i've resisted consents in the past and and I've yeah, been successful and you take that risk and you say, I, I I, want the draw. I want to see what I get out of it." But that, I've seen uh, when you try and
1: when you try to. So I, I've also refused, tried to refuse consent. And sometimes they bring motions yeah. sort of directed for like for some yeah, judgment or whatever it's
2: called. I can't even remember. You You could, you could resist the motion as well, but. Yeah, Um, again, it's just a lot
1: more money and time. It's just like, I don't know if I can suggest that as a viable strategy to my client. I mean, I'm pissed about it, but that doesn't mean that they need to pay for that.
2: It hasn't been clear to me where the federal court
0: is coming from, because they keep using that term settle. And as one DOJ lawyer told me, like, this isn't like a monetary amount that we're trying to calculate. It's either the application is like either the person, basically, as they put it, either the person can come to Canada or they can't. Um, and as long as you know, there's federal court dismissals are still the majority. I think I don't fully see where there's pressure on DOJ to settle more. Um, yeah.
1: Close the loop on this mandamus thing, though. I think that I want to go back to what Raj said about the inefficacy of the remedy, too, because like, there's something more there. Because like, when you win. And I put that in air quotes for those people that can't see me on screen is like, when you win a mandamus, that might just be like, because you settled because they've started doing something. It doesn't necessarily mean they finished doing something. And so the idea that it's just some legitimate movement on the file is kind of like, I would love some guidance from Raj about like, what do you do now? They've started well, processing. Do you withdraw or do you still hold the well, JR
2: there? You know, and I tell my clients this and and I'm paraphrasing Jerry Seinfeld on this, but Mandamus is sometimes like uh, tipping over a vending machine or breaking up with their girlfriend. Uh, you may not be able to do it on that first uh, go around. You might have to, you know, you might, you do the mandamus, they take a meaningful step or they, you know, ideally, like, for example, my client gets landed, the last two got, just get landed or they take a meaningful step where they tell you like, oh, actually, you know what, uh, we just need this one thing. And so you would discontinue you would then diarize it and then Uh you would and then you do it again you do another demand and so i've done a mandamus for one client i've done it three times and each time i get some movement then it gets stalled again then i do another mandamus then i get get some movement then i do another one and so sometimes on the rare occasion you might have to do multiple mandamus applications again you're, you're tipping over a vending machine you're chopping down a tree whatever you use whatever analogy you want to use but Uh, And the beauty of mandamus is that there's no prejudice, you can you can discontinue and do it again. Yeah,
0: no, we have where like we file the mandamus and then 10 days later there's a request for an updated job offer and the client provides that same day and we don't bother discontinuing we just keep it going and saying You don't
2: you don't discontinue in that case because according to jurisprudence and I believe Justice Russell and Ovale is that it locks in it's frozen once you file that mandamus subsequent steps should not be again new evidence, shouldn't be in play. Yeah. But uh, for the most part, run, I'm know, the same is... thing as you. If asked, I knew the citation off rules. the top of my head, that would be impressive. Oh, I don't mean like that, <laughs> I mean, email.
1: You know.
2: it's, it's I just wish a, I
1: had that brain. Oh my god, a, I, I, I
2: was like, wow, like no, it's Justice Russell in Ovale O V A L E. Um, yeah, okay, that's all we need.
0: Do you think um because I'm seeing a lot of uh chatter about whether processing will return to normal do you see there being a new normal uh when this pandemic's over like do we go back to federal skilled worker and cec being in the same draw six months no is the future these trpr pathways yes Um, i went on someone else's uh a consultant show named ask Kubir and i kind of made the same point that you guys did which is i have much more sympathy for the people inside canada uh, Than the federal skilled worker applicants uh, who are outside, or especially those who are just in the pool, and that I believe politicians will also. And I got a bit raked over the coals uh, as an anti fsw or for that. But do you see? Um, do you see? Why would uh,
2: we? Why would we select a 32-year-old botanist <laughs> from Pune? We're gonna My get hate mail. A 25-year-old Punjabi guy making eighty thousand dollars a year in Canada. Count me. I'm with you, brother. Yeah, um, no, I, uh, the, the new normal is we should never have put the CCs and the FSWs in the same category. The I future is CECs. The future is these TR to PR pathways. Um, that is the future. The FSWs are going to be an add-on. Um, historically, the F S W started about 50 years ago or so. It was the most popular, let's say, oversubscribed model of economic immigration. Now that you have a constant intake of international students and temporary foreign workers, there's absolutely uh, very little justification for the FSW to remain as the uh, default uh, route for economic immigration to Canada. The future is going to be employer-driven, it's gonna be PNPs, it's gonna be CECs, it's going to be TR to PR pathways. That 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 is the it. new normal.
1: No, I totally get it, but um, this is where I get super political and it's partially because like, you know, like, um, it's because of my ties to the caregiver community, which is that like, um, I, I understand that TR to PR is kind of the way that they're going, but like, you know, what they've always said to me is like, the reason we can't land caregivers, nurses, like those kinds of people from abroad is that, you know, well, it's mostly about caregivers. If you bring in the caregivers, um, they, as permanent residents, will they actually work as caregivers? And so, but the problem here is that if, like the forcing them to come in as TRs and then to work in this indentured servitude kind of model until they've earned the right to apply for permanent residency. And actually they've they've entirely closed down the possibility of somebody coming into Canada as a TR right now as a caregiver. So you have to apply through the PR. Like, This is part that like, I get these emails all the time, like a caregiver from abroad cannot apply for a work permit anymore. That's, there's a refusal to process ministerial instructions, so they cannot. So unless we have enough within our existing labor market pool, either Canadians or people here on work permits, like there's no option for them to do that. So it's again, like, this is where the strategic planning hasn't been thought through. Because like, if you say it's all those in Canada, then we're going, like, this is why I've said since the beginning, since the introduction of the HCCP and the HSWP, they're killing the caregiver program. This is just a more apolitical way of doing it.
2: They've been killing the, to be fair, they've been killing the program for a number of years now. Um,
1: Well, they've been killing the people up until now. Now they're actually going to, They honestly, they have been like the way that it was before with the abuse and you must live in the house and it's going to take you six years to become a permanent resident. And in that time, you just have to keep working in this role, even if you have a nursing degree. Um, and, you know, in that amount of time, you're gonna to get to the point that you can't even reawaken your nursing credentials because you haven't been working as a nurse for so long. Like, it's just, so they've been killing the people, but now they're making it so they can't even come in.
0: Yeah. Raj, I see you've got a uh, meeting to run to. Before you go, where can people contact you on Twitter, all those FSWs in the pool to convince you why they should take priority? <laughs> It's like the Spider-Man meme, right?
2: Everyone pointing
0: at each other, and all they could do is just increase numbers. It's
2: at ImLawyer, I-M-M, Lawyer Canada is my Twitter handle, and uh, website is sshlaw.ca, but uh, uh, this has always been fun. I really enjoy my time, and I always learn uh, something new, and I think we could talk, uh, you know, we could spend at least another hour on this, but... um, But thank you so much. It's yeah. been, it's oh, been thank fun. you so
1: much, Raj. You like seriously broke my brain with all of that that uh, wisdom. So uh, <laughs> so thank
2: you for that. Yeah. I always learn something from you, Deanna and Steve. Thank thanks a lot. Take care. All right, bye.